Welcome to The Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 79. Hi, friends, and welcome to the continuation of our summer podcast series. This summer, I am sharing free audio samples from my recently released memoir, Lies of the Magpie, which is a bonus for you, my listeners, because the audiobook is not even yet available to purchase. And so you are getting to sample the audiobook before anybody else. Lucky you, huh? Chapter 30 is entitled, I Need a Mother, and it is the last chapter of part two of the book. I do think part two is the heaviest part of the book. I tell my readers, get through part two, just get through part two, and then part three is really worth it. Part three is titled Change, and today you'll hear chapter 31, the first chapter in part three, entitled Ears to Hear. With that introduction, I present these selections from Lies of the Magpie. Chapter 30, I Need a Mother. Over the past five months, I've spent every Friday morning eating greasy eggs and burnt hash browns at a country diner, mingling with other business members of the Southwest Valley Chamber of Commerce. After months on the wait list, today is finally my turn to do the breakfast business spotlight. The presentation I've worked up will hopefully be attention-grabbing, interactive, and memorable. I want every person in that room holding one of my magazines in their hot little hands, flipping through the pages, reading the content, and seeing their competitor's beautiful full-page ad on the inside front cover. They might think they are only playing a fast-paced search-and-find game in order to win a chocolate bar, but in reality, they will be falling in love with the newest monthly in town. On the way to school, flashing lights signal for me to pull over. I turn into the school parking lot and let Danny and Kate run into class so they don't have to witness my interlude with the law. The policeman walks over to my car in slow motion. Come on, officer, let's make this a fast conversation about speeding because I have a million things to do today. After a lecture and verbal warning, the officer follows behind as I drive carefully out of the lot. The minute his patrol car turns the opposite direction, the gas pedal meets the floor. Pulling in front of the diner, I wonder if I can set up in time for my presentation. My arms, usually capable of lifting 50-pound bags of flour without problem, strain to heft the box with 100 copies of our January issue. Making several trips from the restaurant to the trunk, I carry in business cards, rate sheets, advertising contracts, a game buzzer, and prizes. The buffet is surrounded by business owners who are older and more experienced in business than I am. Being pulled over has left me nervous and unsettled. In the bathroom, I stuff paper towels under my arms so my blouse won't show sweat marks. My neck is breaking out in red, nervous blotches. I fluff my hair, wipe smeared mascara from beneath my eyes, freshen lipstick, and take deep breaths. Stop shaking, I tell myself. The chamber president introduces me. Hi, friends. My legs wobble. Is everyone ready to play an awesome game this morning? Following the presentation, I sell three new ads and the mayor asks me to be on the committee to plan the upcoming chamber trade show. The crowd around me lingers. Despite my best efforts to appear calm and in control, I have broken out in chills. My teeth won't stop chattering. The paper towels under my arms are drenched. I'd better get going, I say at last. Philippe, an odd man who introduces a new business enterprise every few weeks, 
stands when I do. Let me take one of those boxes for you. He follows me making small talk, then asks unexpectedly, Are you still married? My shoe catches on a crack in the pavement. The tower in my arms leans, and I weave right and left to counterbalance. Philippe waits for my answer. Um, yes, I am still married. Why do you ask? I noticed you aren't wearing your wedding ring anymore, he says, pointing to my left hand. Oh, that. The photo frame tips over in the box. I've lost some weight and my ring keeps sliding off. I don't want to lose it. Philippe proceeds to tell me about a jeweler he's partnering with who adjusts ring sizes. He puts the box in the trunk and hands me a business card, which I plan to throw away. No reason to resize my ring because once I stop nursing Jack, the weight will come right back. The heat in my car is blasting full power, but I can't stop shivering. It's almost noon, later than I told Aaron I'd be. Dizzy and disoriented, I make two wrong turns before getting onto the main road. The gas empty light flashes angrily, but Jack is going to be starving. No time to refuel. When I turn the corner onto memory lane, Aaron is in the front yard pacing the length of the grass and bouncing Jack. Tanner scoots a sit-on-fire engine up and down the sidewalk. Jack's face is red, his cheeks soggy with tears. I rush to them, lifting Jack from Aaron's shoulder. Hey there! Shh, shh, it's okay, it's okay. I kiss his face. Did you try giving him a binky? I question Aaron. You know he won't take a binky. There's nothing I can do for him when he's hungry. If you think you'll be late, you've got to leave me a bottle. I had tried to pump that morning, but didn't have extra milk. I didn't know I would be so long. People stayed after breakfast to ask about advertising. I have three new ads for you to design. Aaron picks up Tanner's fire engine and we enter through the garage. I'm unbuttoning my blouse and Jack is trying to latch on as we walk. Maybe it's time to stop nursing. Aaron bites a loose piece of dry skin on his lower lip. His comment at once disarms me and sets off my defenses. Breast milk is the healthiest for Jack. Buying formula would cost $50 a month. But you don't have enough milk for him. With all my strength, I hold in tears so Aaron won't see me cry. I fire back. That's because we went to Utah for Christmas. Traveling always makes me lose my milk. The last thing I want to consider is the possibility that Aaron might be right. I've failed at so many things I can't fail in breastfeeding as well. Caught off guard and unable to govern my emotions, I make the mistake of telling Aaron about the dizziness in the parking lot as I carry Jack to the bedroom. Why won't you go to a doctor? Aaron's question follows me down the hall where I take Jack and settle into my bedroom rocking chair without answering. In the rocker, Jack sucks furiously, but there is no milk. In all the dashing here and there this morning, my milk hasn't let down. Jack unlatches, looks at me questioningly, and resumes crying. I squeeze my nipple to coax milk to come, but instead of creamy white liquid sustenance, only clear, fat tears land on Jack's mouth. His tongue flicks out to lick the drops, then he squints and recoils at the salty taste. Why won't I go to a doctor? A knock at my bedroom door gets my attention, and Laya comes to sit by me during this feeble attempt at nursing. Aaron asked why I won't go to a doctor, I tell her. How does a person know if they're sick 
enough to merit seeing a doctor? That was the standard go-to question my siblings and I could expect to hear our mom ask if we mentioned staying home from school. Do you think you're sick enough to miss school? I never knew how to answer. What was the measure of sick enough? My family rolled our eyes while using the term hypochondriac to describe people who went to the doctor for every fever or sniffle. There were days working in the field when I watched my dad bent over an irrigation ditch, puking so violently I expected to see him barf up a kidney. Secretly, I hoped he would call it a day so I could go inside and watch cartoons. But before the echo of his retching had finished bouncing off the Castle Valley Hills, he had wiped his mouth on his shirt sleeve, replaced his work hat, and was asking why I hadn't yet fetched him the wire cutters. Growing up, even being legitimately sick didn't necessarily justify seeing a doctor or missing work or school. Every July on Pioneer Day, we venerated our ancestors, who pushed handcarts through blizzards with frostbitten hands and feet long past the time their human strength had given out. No matter how deep I sift through my files of recollection, I cannot find one memory of either my mom or dad spending a day in bed for being sick. But I can easily pull up one of the worst memories from my ninth grade year, an image and a deep bellowing voice that still make me cringe in disgrace. That morning I'd woken with a fever and sore throat. Mom asked if I felt sick enough to stay home from school. The answer was yes, but there was too much happening at school to miss. An algebra test, a history report, and an after-school dance team practice. By lunch, my head was throbbing so hard that instead of going to woodshop class, I went to the office and asked to lie down. The secretary said she'd call my mom to come get me. No, I said. I needed to stay at school and take my test. But if I could just rest for 45 minutes. The nurse escorted me back to a couch and offered medicine. I declined the medicine, accepted the couch, and fell asleep, to be awakened by the booming bass voice of the assistant principal. Which faker do we have in here today? The question was directed to the secretary regarding the sleeping form on the couch, the words ringing like low tones from a bell tower. To this day, when I hear the voice of actor James Earl Jones, I feel a shiver of guilt run up my spine, remembering the dagger of accusation. Who is that lazybones, faking sick and sloughing class? There could be no lower esteem of my character than to be thought a lazy faker. I sat up from the couch, my head reeling, went to class, answered foggy algebra test questions, and somehow spun my way through drill team rehearsal. The next day, Mom took me to the one and only clinic in town. I don't remember the diagnosis. I only remember the feeling of utter relief when the town doctor declared, This is one sick girl. The school received a doctor's note, written evidence against the allegation of faking and laziness. But what if the doctor hadn't found anything wrong with me? I try to shake the memory and relax so that my milk will let down, but my breasts are limp and empty. Jack's face wrinkles into a cry. Aaron is right. I should stop nursing. He needs a bottle of formula. Hang in there, Laya urges. You've wanted for a long time to nurse a baby the full 12 months. This is just a setback. 
Give Jack formula today and you'll lose your milk for good. Keep trying. His rooting will stimulate lactation. Laya is also right. My mother breastfed eight babies. When she telephones, no matter what else we discuss, she always asks if I'm still nursing. Motherhood is not about doing what feels good. Motherhood is synonymous with sacrifice. The rest of the day is rough, and I don't sleep well that night. Saturday morning, Aaron leaps out of bed. In no time, the lawnmower is passing back and forth outside my bedroom window. He didn't look at me, fill my forehead, test to see if I was breathing, ask if I'm okay this morning after a rough night. This fact that he didn't check on me rubs at a tender interior part until I sting raw like skinned knuckles after getting too close to a cheese grater. Laya enters with her hair freshly washed, rubbing lotion into her arms. I tell her about the cold absence of a simple good morning. Aaron resents me. I annoy him. Maybe he's letting you sleep in. Laya tries to find the bright side. If he thought I was sleeping, then he is clueless about how little I sleep. Laya isn't clueless. She knows how I spend hours in the night hovering above the surface of sleep, like floating above a warm feather duvet and being close enough to sense its pillowy softness, but unable to be engulfed in its layers of comfort. Aaron doesn't love me anymore. He has a lot to do today. So his backyard deserves more attention than his wife? In the other room, Danny and Tanner are awake, jumping on their beds. How can I get a portion of their energy? I suppose if he believed you were sick, then he wouldn't have abandoned you in the house with the natives. Laya nods toward Danny's bedroom, where the sound of the mattress sliding off its box springs makes me realize that mowing a lawn would require a lot less effort than rustling the kids through their morning routine. At least Laya can now see the proof. Aaron wasn't making a kind gesture by letting me sleep in. He has locked himself in the quiet outdoors, leaving me here alone to handle the herd. He doesn't believe I'm sick? Aaron didn't offer to take the kids this morning so I could sleep in because he doesn't believe me? He doesn't think it's real when I try to describe how awful I feel? Does he think I'm faking? My face darkens. Aaron is ignoring me on purpose. When I stand, a searing headache shoots across my scalp. Swallowing is a million needles hammered into my esophagus. A fit of coughing sends me running for the toilet to relieve my bladder before the coughing does it for me. The coughing looses layers of phlegm that leaves me leaning over my bathroom sink, spitting and wiping mucus from my chin. In the mirror, the eyes of a wild Amazon woman with pale, acne-marked skin gaze at me. Look at me now, Aaron. That Photoshop can't fix this. No wonder Aaron prefers spending time with the greener grass on the outside of our little white house than being cooped up in here with his wilting wife. Who could blame him for wanting to be in a place with a little more life? The room spins, Jack fusses, Tanner and Danny launch into my room like bottle rockets and bounce on the bed. My arms buckle, lifting Jack out of the crib, and I have to immediately lay him on the floor not to drop him. This sets him to crying harder. Danny leaps from the bed, taking me down in a sneak tackle from behind. 
The sounds of needy voices echo off the walls, calling for food, drink, attention, dry diapers, but I have nothing to give. My throat goes sour with resentment for Aaron leaving me in the house alone. The lawn can go to hell. He should be in here working crowd control. Danny's tackle has left me splayed out in the middle of my bedroom floor in a loose fetal position with legs spread askew. My arm reaches out and pulls Jack to my chest. He wiggles and roots until he finds one breast and sucks vigorously for several minutes until, in frustration, he lets go and looks up at me, his bottom lip quivering. I blow lightly on his hair. Tears roll down my temple and moisten my arm before melting into the carpet. Jack cries. We are hungry, but neither of us knows what to do about it. I may not be green and lush, but I need Aaron more than I need a green lawn. I need someone to lift me up, wrap me in a blanket, hold me safe in their arms, rocking and soothing me, whispering that everything will be okay. I need a mother. Lies of the Magpie, Book 3, Change. Chapter 31, Ears to Hear. The last week of January, Kate holds my hand nervously as we walk into the office of a new ear, nose, and throat specialist. Following instructions, she climbs up into a large leather chair and sits bravely, answering questions with a smile, ever eager to please. She doesn't fill half the chair, but the exam room overflows with her energy and light. Kate's entrance into any space conjures images of sunshine rays shooting through a prism and ricocheting as vibrant rainbows off multiple surfaces at once. My lips whisper a silent prayer that this doctor will be able to help Kate. She is radiance and love despite the constant dark circles under her eyes and her tonsils the size of Jupiter's moons. Dr. Cyrus puts Kate under a high-powered microscope and tisks. Her ears are chock full of fluid. I could cry with relief. If her ears are full of fluid, why have all the other doctors claimed her ears are fine? Dr. Cyrus explains. A drinking glass filled to the top with water can appear empty if you look through the middle. Kate's ears are so full of fluid that a doctor looking through the fluid might have mistaken her ears as being clear. Every part of my mothering instinct knows Dr. Cyrus is different. Nothing else the doctors told me felt exactly right. This feels right. What a difference a good doctor makes. Dr. Cyrus returns the scope to the lapel pocket of his white lab coat. I'd venture to guess she doesn't hear well through all of that fluid. I shake my head. So I want to give her a comprehensive hearing test. He leads us down the hall to a room that looks like a NASA control center. There are no padded earphones from the 1970s or hints of finger rubbing techniques like other doctors have done. The attendant helps Kate step into a soundproof booth and instructs her to raise either hand when she hears a beep, music, or spoken word. Kate stands perfectly still and watches me through the glass, eager to perform well on this test. Outside the booth, I can also hear the sounds. Instinctively, my arms flinch with each beep. Kate flinches her arms when I do, then stops herself from raising her hand all the way, just as I do. She is looking at me for guidance because she can't hear any of the sounds that are wildly beeping, buzzing, and bouncing all around her. Unable to prevent myself from flinching, I finally have to fold my arms tightly across my chest. 
Like a mirror image, Kate folds her little arms across her chest and waits for my next cue. The tears surface until I'm watching her through blurred vision. While she hears nothing, I hear the echoes of a hundred interactions with Kate. All the times when my voice would crescendo with anger and impatience. Why do you always choose to ignore me? I would grab her little elbow and jerk her around to look into my fiery eyes. Why do I have to repeat everything ten times to you? The face she would look into accuses her of being an obstinate, disobedient girl. I have been yelling at her for years, trying to make her listen. She has spent the same amount of time trying to hear. There is no tissue in the lab. I hold up a one-minute sign signaling to Kate that I'll be right back. Her face is innocent behind the glass wall. She understands my gesture perfectly. She has become an expert at reading gestures and facial expressions behind soundproof glass. As I walk out of the room, my heart twists on itself with the realization that every time I'd gotten to the point of using gestures to communicate with my daughter, I was already way past patient, far beyond angry, and the gestures she saw from me were flailing arms, madly flashing eyes, wide-mouthed beratings. In her short six years of life, this is the communication she has had from me. On the drive home, I explain for Kate what a tonsillectomy and ear tubes mean, but all she wants to know is if she did a good job on the test. Before pulling into the driveway, I park in front of our mailbox and reach for the stack of envelopes, advertisements, and newspapers, all things to add on my to-do list. When we open the front door, Jack pulls his chubby legs under him, sitting up with a self-satisfied grin, and waves for the first time. Kate tugs on my hand. I look down into her soft face and see traces of her baby cheeks. Mommy, when they cut my throat and my blood bleeds out, how will the doctors put all the blood back inside? The swallow sticks hard in my throat. I should wrap Kate in a reassuring embrace. I should scoop Jack in my arms. I should go through the house gathering all my little people under my wings like a mother hen and apologize for always being so stressed and angry, for always harping about messy rooms and sticky door handles. Kate, you won't bleed out all your blood. You'll hardly bleed at all. Go get started on your homework. I'll be right back. The words stutter out more choked than spoken as I turn and escape out the front door, leaving Jack waiting for me to acknowledge his achievement. Outside, the sun is beautiful, the sky a clear blue. The winter grass is brilliant green, the petunias in full bloom. At the time we signed papers to buy this house, I had fallen drunk in love with the idea of eating breakfast as a family on the front porch. Cynthia even left her patio set for us. Today, the glass-topped patio table is coated in dirt. I toss the mail onto the table and drop into a wrought iron chair. My elbows smear two dust circles on the glass as my head hangs cumbrous in my hands. We haven't eaten a meal here since. I can't remember. One by one, I pick up the envelopes and toss each aside until I come to a letter addressed to me from the Superior Court of Arizona. My finger slides under the lip, breaking the seal, and pulls out a crisply folded paper with neatly typed words, summoning me for jury duty. Laya arrives and joins me at the table. She places a note on top of the mail and points for me to read it. She has designed a clever image, a smiley face with dollar signs for eyes, to tape on my bathroom mirror. 
a reminder of my goal to boost ad revenue this month by $1,300. I put the note on the tossed-aside pile and lean heavier onto one arm. I think I'm going to call a regular doctor. I test the idea on Laya. By regular doctor, I mean a physician other than my OBGYN. Naturally, anyone in Dr. Wood's office is going to jump to the conclusion of postpartum depression. Who is your regular doctor? Laya asks. That's the problem. Outside of my obstetrician, I don't have a doctor. I take my babies to every prenatal appointment before birth and every well-child visit after birth. Once they grow teeth, I take them to the dentist every six months. But outside of baby-related issues, I don't have a doctor to check up on the rest of me. Still, sitting here with Laya, I struggle to know if I'm sick enough to merit seeing a doctor. Holding the letter up again, I study the instructions for reporting to jury duty. The state of Arizona wants me to sit in a courtroom listening to evidence against one of my peers, but I am unfit to judge when the proof is stacked high against me. We can't continue living this way. I'm constantly harping at the kids, competing with Aaron, always running behind. For the past weeks, Aaron has had to abandon his work to buckle Jack and Tanner in car seats and drive me to my appointments in Goodyear, pulling in front of businesses so I have only a few steps to walk in order to deliver ad proofs. Then he stays awake late working in the office to catch up. Something has to change. Taking Kate to a new ear, nose, and throat doctor today made all the difference. Instead of looking past her apparently clear but liquid-filled ears and pronouncing her hearing perfectly fine, when we all knew she was deafer than a post, Dr. Cyrus had gotten to the core of the problem. This is what I need, the right doctor who will look beyond my seven-month-old baby and treat me as a whole person, not just the child-bearing parts. Pulling a random name out of the phone book seems a too risky version of Dr. Roulette. Tracing letters of the alphabet into dust on the table, I suddenly remember that years ago, shortly after we'd moved to Surprise, Aaron had gone to someone named Dr. Thorpe. He'd impressed me as being intelligent and attentive, someone I could trust. In addition, he is a member of my same church and likely has pioneer ancestors who walked alongside my pioneer ancestors, traversing the United States in covered wagons to settle the West. Dr. Thorpe would know it's not in my DNA to complain about a few aches and pains and a bit of the baby blues. He would understand how I'm not bred to quit pushing the handcart before reaching the top of the hill. So it's Dr. Thorpe's office number I'm seeking when I go inside the house and pull a kitchen chair into the pantry to fetch the yellow pages off the highest shelf. Taking the phone from its cradle, I punch in the number. Hi, my name is Malia Warner and I'm calling to make an appointment. What seems to be the problem? The voice on the other end sounds overworked and two hours past due for a break. I swallow down a big lump of doubt. I haven't been feeling well. Pause. Okay. The voice hints that a little more information could be helpful. I'm really tired. Quite often I feel lightheaded. I can hear her eyes roll, so I add, and my arms get tingly or they go numb. What's your date of birth? I tell her. We don't have you in our system. I've never been in before. The answer spills out, and too late I realize by the sinking feeling in my stomach that I've solved her dilemma of what to do with me. Dr. Thorpe isn't accepting new patients, she says smugly. Really? My voice cracks on the second syllable. 
I almost hang up the phone. Then in desperation, I spurt out, My husband is a patient. Could I set an appointment for him and come in his place? It doesn't work that way, she sighs. I stay on the line trying to convince her that they must have appointment space available for Aaron, who is in their system, but will not likely be using any of his fairly allotted appointment timeshare, so why couldn't I use it? At last she makes some excuse and hangs up, leaving me listening to the dial tone. That night, Aaron is working late in the office while I lie alone in bed, exhausted but unable to sleep. Pulling off the comforter, I wander into the office wrapped like a mummy and sink to the floor next to Aaron's chair. What's up? he asks. I don't know how to put it into words other than to say, I feel awful. Aaron spreads the comforter on the floor, dims the light, turns on relaxing music and stretches out next to me so we are face to face. I called Dr. Thorpe's office today. Aaron tries not to look surprised. When are you going in? I'm not. He isn't taking new patients. We lie there, two grown-ups, stretched out on our office floor, listening to music. Aaron rubs my face and back until I can relax. I think about how much time lately I've spent on floors. On Sunday evening, Aaron returns home from church meetings. You'll never believe who I bumped into tonight. He tells me that he saw Dr. Thorpe, and when Dr. Thorpe asked about his family, he mentioned me being sick and that he's worried but doesn't know what to do. I told him you called his office and got turned down. He said to call his office Monday morning and he will get you in. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed these sample chapters from Lies of the Magpie. If you just can't wait to hear the rest of the story, the book is available for purchase in Kindle or paperback right now on Amazon. If you've already finished reading the book and just can't get enough or want to go back through and read it again more in depth, you are invited to join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight's time on Facebook Live, where we are going through one chapter per week. And this coming Thursday, July 23rd, we will be discussing chapter two, the topic of admiration versus love. And if you missed chapter one and the prologue, you can go back through my Facebook feed and rewatch the recordings. And if you've finished reading Lies of the Magpie and haven't yet left a review on Amazon or Goodreads or both, will you take a minute and go do that right now today? I know it takes a minute. It is one of the things that helps new authors launch our careers more than anything else. I have a goal to get 50 reviews so that I can draw the attention of bookstores and libraries so that they will want to carry Lies of the Magpie and make it available to more readers. So if you gained something from the book, take a minute, leave a review, and help other readers find out about the messages and themes and story of Lies of the Magpie. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with me today. I wish you a fantastic week, and I will meet you back here for another great episode of The Power Podcast. Bye-bye.